you in the name of all that is good, all that is sacred, and in the warm and loving energy of this community, Spiritual Life Center. If you're joining us for the first time, we especially want to welcome you because we know that you are not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment. Thank you for joining us on your unique path today, and we hope you enjoy this special message from this past Sunday's service. Soul Light Connection. Ah. I think it was the summer of 1954. I wasn't around around that time. But there was a study that was taking place. And there were 11 boys from a typical Midwestern city. And what happened? They boarded a bus. And they boarded a bus to go to a state park. It was about 150 miles away from where they lived. And all of those young boys had just completed the fifth grade. None of them have met each other before. That all come from similar backgrounds. And when they reached the park, they were assigned a particular cabin. And this particular group of young boys called themselves the Rattlers. And then the very next day, a second group of boys came. And they also had come pretty much from the same background. They were a pretty homogeneous group, and they too were assigned a cabin. But they could not see the first group. And they called themselves the Eagles. And for a week, the two groups went about doing their activities throughout the week at the, the campground. Uh, they would swim and, you know, they played baseball amongst themselves. They, they roasted marshmallows and, I guess at night, uh, told horror stories with each other around the campfire. Like I said, they didn't know each other as the groups because they swam separately and they ate at different times so they wouldn't cross paths. And each of the groups created their own system of, of governance and their own rules. Interestingly, there was a culture within the Rattlers. You know, they, they, they cursed like sailors. The Eagles frowned upon cursing, so they forbid profanity in their group. And supposedly at the end of the week, the two groups learned about each other for the very first time. And there was an immediate reaction. They wanted to challenge one another to a contest or a different contest. And so the counselors who were in charge scheduled a tournament between the two. And on the first day, the Rattlers won both the baseball game and the tug of war. But the Eagles were livid. And they claimed the whole thing must have been rigged. <laughs> and they claimed the Rattlers were just too big, and they had to be older because they could not possibly be fifth graders. 
And so the eagles on the way back to their cabin that even noticed that rattlers had put up a, a, a flag on, on the fence around home plate celebrating their victory, and they tore the flag down. And then the next day, the two groups got into a fist fight, and it had, it had to be broken up by the counselors. And that day, however, there was a reversal of fortune for the eagles. The eagles won the baseball game, and then you know, they said they won because they prayed to God and the Rattlers lost because they were being punished by God because of all of their profanity. And then after winning the baseball game, the Eagles beat the Rattlers at the tug of war. And the Rattlers decided to retaliate. And they raided the Eagles' cabin after they had gone to sleep. But then the feud escalated. And the Eagles countered by raiding the Rattlers' cabin during breakfast they overturned the rattlers beds and they messed up their rooms and when they found their rooms had been overturned the rattlers had accused the eagles of being evil communists <laughs> and as the tensions mounted both groups became increasingly aggressive they became increasingly self-righteous and the Rattlers decided they had lost the baseball game because the Eagles had better bats. Somehow they had snuck some better bats to them. And the tit-for-tat went on for each group. And then they began stockpiling rocks for the use in case the other tried to trespass on their cabins. And when the Eagles won their tournament of the baseball game, they were playing baseball games every day. Each boy from the winning team got a medal and they got a penknife and the Rattlers immediately stole them. And at this point, the members of both groups announced that they wanted nothing more to do with the other group. But the council had something up their sleeve. They were, they were grad students, so they were just getting started. <laughs> so they brought the groups together for another contest. And hundreds of beans were strewn in the dirt. And each boy was given a minute to collect as many beans as they could and put them in a paper bag. And then one by one, the boys were called up and the contents of their bags supposedly were projected up on a screen for everyone to count the number of beans that he each had collected. In fact, the bags were never opened. It was the same beans were being projected onto the screen over and over, but they were just in different arrangements. But the Rattlers saw what they wanted to see. And so did the Eagles. And from the Rattlers' perspective, when they saw they had gathered an average of 10% more beans than their rivals. And then the Eagles saw it totally differently. And they claimed that they were better bean-picking uppers than anyone else. And theirs was 20% more than those on the opposing team. That was the elaborate experiment. It was regarded as a very classic experiment that took place during that time. You know, it was a psychology, a social psychology experiment. And those fifth graders, of course, were chosen because all of them were pretty much alike. They kind of did the same things, grew up in the same kind of neighborhoods. But all it took for them to hate one another was some cheap medals and pen knives that were awarded to the basic winning baseball team. And so the results as they looked at them were somewhat unsettling for those who observed them. And for those who looked at that experiment, it was still somewhat unsettling. Because it was based upon nothing. It was based upon what they were seeing in the world. And it had led to a great deal of 
division between the two groups. I think that experiment can serve as a reflection of the polarization and divisiveness they often see in our world today. It may be based upon culture. It may be based upon financial status. It may be based upon political affiliation. It can all be summed up in an us versus them way of thinking, which is one of the most basic and sometimes potentially the most dangerous of human dynamics. You know, what makes the us versus them problematic is that it is not based upon a healthy debate of ideas as to what idea is superior to another. It's based upon the belief that one group is good and another group is evil. And when the conversation turns from challenging ideas to declaring anyone with an opposing point of view as evil, then that person is otherized, an enemy, an object that needs to be destroyed as the experiment showed in the otherization that took place in that social media, in that experiment that took place. And I think, you know, what happened when those groups were together, they reinforced their own perspectives. I think nowadays we have social media to thank for that because people are in their own echo chambers and they're reinforcing a certain belief system over and over again. And it's been set up, I believe, as a foundation from religion, including Christianity. I don't know if you remember, you know, some of you may be around that watched Saturday Night Live years ago. You know, they had the, do you remember the church lady? And the church lady would bring in somebody in there to interview them, and she would be kind of like, you know, quizzing them and seeing all the bad things they had done. And she would say, could it be Satan? (laughs) Now, when we examine the academic history of Christian religion, you know, there's a great book by Elaine Pagel. She wrote a book called Beyond Belief, and she's discovering the history of the Christian religion. And we look at uh, the idea of how Satan evolved, this whole idea. And, of course, it's not a dude. We know that in our belief system. It's really a way of thinking. It's just lower vibrations. It's not an entity that opposes so-called the presence of God. That's just made up. Because I always like to say, if God is all that there is, and God is all that there is, and if God is love, and God is love, and if everything comes out of the only thing that there is, there's no room for anything else other than the presence and the power and the love of God. Everything else is made up by human beings. There is no devil. There is no Satan. There is no opposing power. But we begin to believe that. But that Satan idea evolved from demonizing people who disagreed with those with the power in that particular Christian movement. Now, I'm talking about Christianity because we are part of it, so I can say some things like that. Those opposed were considered the other, and thus they were considered not just different, they were considered bad people. As much of the us versus them, that's how it really started, making other people evil lies in the fabric of many strands of Christianity. You know, I always say that if if the master teacher, Jesus Christ, came back and he said, and he saw that all of the the teachings that were so sprung out out of his name, he would have said, oh, my God, Jesus Christ. Well, he probably wouldn't say that. (laughs) He'd probably say, let's tear all of this down and begin again. Because many people just got it wrong. You know, demonization really starts with those within a particular faith, but later includes those outside of it. As a result, those in the majority often move from mere rhetorical attacks on others 
to become a moral as well as a psychological justification for persecution of those they perceive as heretics, those they perceive as opponents, those they perceive as so-called evil, both real and imagined. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist and founder of analytical psychology, noted that such demonization became part of a cultural patterning. And he called this patterning the cultural unconscious because it became embedded in the psyche of a large portion of humanity. This cultural unconscious has created a collective belief in duality in all and many of the religions that created God and something that opposes the presence of God. And in human consciousness, it shows up as me or, or us and, or, and, and not me and versus them. It's a mind virus that sometimes is infecting the collective consciousness today. This infection influences, if not consciously, unconsciously, the divisiveness we see in our society and our world. But there is a solution. You know, I always like to say that all of our challenges may be mental, emotional, physical, but all solutions have a spiritual origin. And of course, part of that solution lies in embodying the meaning, the true meaning of religion, which means to bind together. Such embodiment requires we move away from the belief in duality to the realization of oneness. Oneness, one presence, one power, one reality. When humanity realizes there is no other, but there is only us, we will rise above the divisive energy to the energy where we work toward divine and perfect solutions. And when we do, everyone benefits. You know, one way to tap into that divine solution source is to go to that one presence, that one power, that one mind that only knows divine and perfect spiritual solutions. And that happens when we tap into the magic of authentic dialogue. This is just one of the things I think that is a tool that's available for us to move and transcend the division and polarization. You know, there was a Unity Worldwide Ministry had their annual convention back in June, and, and there was a group of us that did a presentation on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I did a a video part. I didn't actually attend in person, but they, they showed it. And I was talking about the idea of authentic dialogue. And authentic dialogue is one tool to heal polarization, one tool to heal division. Because authentic dialogue reclaims the true meaning of communication. Communication comes from the Latin term commune and the suffix i.e. and to make, which is what it means to make. So to communicate in the true meaning of the word means to make something common. In authentic dialogue, participants are not seeking to reinforce ideas already known to them. What they're doing is creating something new. They're revealing a truth previously unknown to either party. And no one tries to gain points or to seek to impose their opinion on a different person because of their perspective. Both sides in their roles as hearers, both sides as their roles as speakers are transformed not by playing a game against one another, but playing with each other. And the objective authentic dialogue is to reach a point where everyone wins, 
where everyone arrives at truth, capital T. Now, I looked at a framework that we can look at to bring forth authentic dialogue. And the first part of the framework is generous listening. Now, I tell you, now most communication today is not characterized by generous listening. There's a generous unwillingness to listen and a compulsion to speak. But when we look at the prayer of St. Francis of Sissy, and he said, seek to understand rather than to be just understood. That's the first step. Sometimes we have to step out of our own position and just temporarily kind of put ourselves in another person's shoes as hard as it may be, as tight-fitting as it may be, just for a minute, just to look at it from a different perspective. And then we begin to open up to new possibilities of seeing maybe a third idea coming forth. But then the second thing we have to have is an interest in expanding a vision of what's possible. But it only happens when one is ready to drop attachment, as I said, to a held-on idea. And there has to be a willingness, and I would say even an eagerness, to go on to something new. A willingness to do that. And that's a mindset. To have a holding on to a position loosely enough to let go of it just to be able to see it from another perspective. And then the third thing is that parties have to work through the uncomfortable luxury of changing their mind. Whew. You know, Charles Fillmore, the co-founder of Unity, when he was coming up with, you know, his framework for this Unity concept of, of spirituality, you know, he did a lot of research uh, about, you know, putting together that framework. And one of the things he said is that I reserve the right to change my mind meaning that maybe today I know something a little bit more than I did yesterday. You know, in science, a scientist never holds on to an idea forever because they're continuously evolving and seeing things from a higher point of view. So they're willing to let go of the knowledge they had yesterday in order to tap onto a new idea today. Now, people are willing to change a lot of things in their life. They'll change locations. They'll change mates. They'll change underwear from boxers to briefs. They'll change hairdos, makeup, lipstick, but minds, not so much. Not easy, because beliefs are rooted in conscious and unconscious assumptions, which is nothing more than opinions most of the time. You know, 400 years after Galileo chastised people for believing their preconception that the sun revolved around the earth, and those people knew that they were right. And they'll kill somebody who, anyone, who opposed that perspective. And we knew that was not true. So many people still cling to existing opinions that do not serve them. You know, in 1970, there was a model of what authentic dialogue could look like. And it took place between the activist James Baldwin and the iconic sociologist, or anthropologist, I should say, Margaret Mead. And it was called Rap on Race. And that particular dialogue, it was very in-depth. It was very nuanced. It was very powerful. It was enduring. And it's actually worth listening to. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. And I think they took that from eight hours of conversation. And you can find it on YouTube. But if we listen to the entire dialogue, we recognize how new perspectives emerge from both parties. See, that's the magic of authentic dialogue. 
something beyond what we may be holding on to can emerge. I think what we see our picturing in our outer world is nothing more than the reflection of our collective consciousness or our collective group soul. And if we want to see something different in our outer world, we must first start by transforming our inner world. You know, as that axiom goes, as within, so without. You know, spiritual law reminds us that we must start by seeing the vision or the result we want to achieve before we manifest that vision for our communities and ultimately our world. You know, it says in the book of Proverbs, the 29th chapter and the 18th verse, that where there is no vision, the people perish. But happy is he who follows the law. I always like to bring it up to date. Where there is no vision, the people squabble. That's the James Trapp version of the verse. <laughs> and how we get to that point of having that vision matters. You know, the American architect, author, and inventor, and philosopher, as well as futurist Buckminster Fuller, noted that you never change things by fighting the existing reality. The existing reality, you can't fight it by changing the existing reality. To change something, he says, you must build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Or put a, another way, it is incumbent upon us to articulate and build a different world. Build the world that we want to see. And that includes a revolution of values that puts people over materialism, that puts people over power, that puts people over control. The spiritual foundation from which we operate is the most important thing that we can come from. And if we don't start with a spiritual foundation, we will build the new model on sand rather than rock, and it will not last. So we must begin with those spiritual principles to create that new. We must begin with those spiritual principles to create something that evolves us, to create that different world, and not solely on outer laws, which are necessary, and not solely on mechanical policies. The critical spiritual principle, of course, is oneness. When we see and we begin to operate from the lens of oneness and the realization that everyone and everything is interconnected, then we will never set up models that will harm another individual or the very planet in which we live. Nor will we create, yes, nor will we create separate categories or boxes when we see a reality that in our minds is an us versus them game. We will realize it's always us. It's always us. And whatever we do to another or the planet, we directly or indirectly do to ourselves. So we ought to create the models we want to see from that principle of oneness, that principle of interconnectedness. And when we do, we'll be on our way to transcending any kind of polarization or divisiveness, and we will uplift the entire world. Peace and blessings to you. We are grateful for the opportunity to share with you today and hope you've taken something from this Sunday's message. If you'd like to hear more from Spiritual Life Center, be sure to click subscribe on the podcast platform you're listening from. You can find out more about our community on our website 
at www.slcworld.org. We look forward to being a part of your continued spiritual journey. Wherever you are, God is, and all is well. Spiritual Life Center Transform